listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Hey, folks. Hey, before we get to the episode, uh, just a couple of things. I've, I've heard from many of you that you're looking for a next step to interact with the tools that we discuss on the podcast. So starting in mid-May, I'm launching an interactive Zoom book club where we'll meet and discuss the tools and concepts in my book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. So here's the deal. We're going to meet for six sessions. And in each session, I'll present some content, some of it fresh content that's not in the book, some of it just a quick summary from the chapter. And then I'm actually going to put you all in uh, virtual Zoom rooms with just a few other folks where you'll have an opportunity to chat through the questions and some tools. And then also in each session, I'll be available for Q&A. We're going to set up a private discussion group during the week so you can interact with the materials during the week as well. I'm trying to keep it as affordable as I can. So $48 gets you access to the six sessions. The private group will also put a book uh, in the mail to you. And then also for those interested, we have a really nice high-end journal that you can buy if you want it. I'm going to keep the number of spaces limited. So if this is something you're interested in, just shoot me an email, steve at stevecusswords.com, or you can connect with me through Twitter or Insta on at stevecusswords. And then uh, my website should have a registration link as well if you want to go there. Okay, on to today's episode, uh, which actually launches a new era in the MLA podcast. Uh, the fact is, uh, I think we all know this to be true deep in our bones. Uh, everybody benefits when they have at least one more Aussie in their life. That's just a fact, right? So out of that moral conviction, out of that deep place, I'm excited to announce that we're moving as of today into our exclusive Aussie season of the MLA podcast. We've got some amazing guests coming up next week. We have the irrepressible Christine Kane. I had so much fun talking to Christine and I learned so much listening to her. She's my guest next week. Uh, also, Deb and Alan Hirsch will be on the show. The good Dr. Wes Beavis, who focuses and specializes in ministry burnout. And we're also reaching out to my old youth ministers from my long dead youth, Mark and Karen Wilson. Uh, they are, had a profound impact on me. They're a lot of the reason I'm in ministry today. So each week, a different Aussie on the MLA show Today's guest is an Aussie specialist, not only specializing in being an Aussie, but specializing in leadership anxiety. It's Dr. Jenny Brown. Jenny is the founder and the leader of the Family Systems Institute in Sydney, Australia, about 3,000 miles from where I grew up. Jenny is a Bowen Systems Theory expert. Her PhD applies systems theory to parenting. She focuses on equipping parents to help their loved ones battle mental health issues Jenny is the author of this phenomenal book, Growing Yourself Up. I had the opportunity to read it a while ago. And um, listen, I, I always encourage people to dig deeper into systems theory because everyone who writes about it just comes at it from a different angle. And boy, Jenny's angle in Growing Yourself Up is amazing. She's filtering systems theory through the lens of life transitions, looking at childhood stage, teenage, getting married, having a kid. It's so good. Uh, Jenny also uh, recently edited and co-wrote the Bowen Family Systems Theory and Christian Ministry. So both of those are available. I started my chat with Jenny by just asking how she first stumbled onto systems theory. Well, I agree with that word stumbling, Steve. I was um, living in New York in the broader New York City area with my husband and two young children, an Australian in New York. My husband's work took us there back in 1990 and for a few years beyond. And I was looking for a postgraduate program to extend past my master's, to build on my family therapy interests that I had been committed to in Australia previously. And I found a center that was cohesive in the model it, it taught, was Bowen theory. I had never been taught it in all of my family therapy training in Australia, but I chose a center to do an extended post-grad learning 
program that happened to be bone theory. Our main text was family evaluation, Michael Kerr, and it resonated with me like nothing else that I had ever read in my family therapy training. I'm social work background, family therapist, couple and family therapist, and it made sense of my clients, but probably more importantly of me and my own life, which was ripe for being open to a new way of thinking. Yeah, that's great. What, what in your life was happening that made you so ripe for this? Well, one, I was on the other side of the world to my family. So that raises some challenges and anxieties and uh, less resources around as a, a, a mar- young, youngish marriage and young children. Um, also, my mother had died when I was rel- just entering adult life and my father had was becoming very unwell while I was living in New York and he actually died when I was doing the program. So these key acute events get your attention. And it really got my attention because I started to look at how much I had used distance and borrowed strong self to manage the loss of my mother at an early stage. So I had a theory to make sense of how our family dealt with a really challenging event that was over a decade prior to my studying bone theory, but then with the, the death of my, sec, my other parent, um, I was floundering. My pretend self wasn't holding up so well. And um, bone, I was really ripe for looking at myself differently. Yeah, that's great, Jenny. You you um, you mentioned a few of Bowen's themes. One is the distancing and cutoff, which of course then mm-hmm. enmeshment comes into play. But the other the other one you're really exploring with us right now is family of origin. Mm-hmm. Um, could you maybe talk to us? Uh, you know, our primary audience are, are leaders who are people of faith. Mm-hmm. Why is family of origin work so important to for healthy leaders? Well. It's something I don't think, Steve, you can just easily sell to people. I think you have to come upon the relevance of it somehow. If you are struggling with a leadership situation and you have a a coach or you're in a training program that helps you make the bridge to what is it that I brought out of my particular position in the triangles of my family that makes sense of how I keep doing this in leadership now. There has to be a logical bridge, I think, for people. Although I'm part of, I established a training center in Bowen Theory here in Sydney, Australia, and people sign up to look at family of origin without coming to it through their own pain. But I, so I wouldn't rule that out, that people can just, launch in and and try it if they're up for it and see if it's relevant. But I I do think that it's helpful for people to have a bridge that is going into exploring family of origin, the facts of family of origin, not the fantasies about our family of origin, and begin with a particular research question. How is this relevant to my leadership complexities right now. I think that really energizes the work. Mm, That's good. And you mentioned in that uh, conversation about triangles, the triangles in your family and how that affects Mm -hmm. your work. Maybe you could just help our listeners understand what triangles are in family systems theory. Sure. Well, I will tell you the triangle that is the predominant shaper in my own life and therefore what I take into my family of creation with my husband and my now adult kids, but what I also take into my leadership and my clinical work and my various work domains or into my church as a congregation member. Um, my pri- The primary triangle is the one that we have with our parents. Even if our parents were separated or a parent was 
not terribly involved, their distance feeds an intensity with the more present parents. So it's very powerful in shaping our experience of our formative relationships. My primary triangle is different to my other four siblings. So that's really important. We don't all grow up in the same family. We might have the same parents, but we have different positions with each parent of being insiders or outsiders or a little more off our parents' worry radar than another sibling. And that hugely influences what we bring into our adult life. I was, I became a confidant to my mother in my teenage years. We shared a faith that my father didn't share as I came to my Christian faith in my early teenage years. There are other factors that brought us close together. I I realized looking back that I filled a breach in my parents' marriage of emotional intimacy, even though my parents had a stable marriage. My father was an outsider in that triangle, but he was a willing outsider. There are unwilling outsiders and willing outsiders. He was willing because it took the pressure off him, helped stabilize their marriage. Of course, I didn't know that any of this at the time. This is my study of bone theory just turns on to understand. So he was willing outsider because his wife expected less of him um, because I was filling that breach. But how did that influence me enormously? Because one, it made, it shaped me to secure myself through being a conflict done, having people talk to me about their problems, look at the field of work I'm in. And it shaped me to be elevated above my siblings in importance to my mother, which impacts my relating to peers is more difficult. And I have to work on that. Um, I'm comfortable being important. That's not good. I need to go out of my comfort zone. I need to practice being on the outside to grow my maturity. So there's a few ideas, Steve. I could go on, but the understanding that triangle, very important. I'll, I'll, one other piece of it is because I sense that even as a, a, a young um, adolescent growing adult, I sensed that I was special to my mother in a, and, and I viewed my father as less than because of the position I had in that triangle, which I've had to work at respecting him and appreciating his strengths. And I've had to do all this work beyond the death of both of my parents who died quite young in my, when I was quite young in my life. But it's been really valuable. I have a different relationship with my mother and my father now to the one I had 20 years ago. It's a really, and they've both been dead for a long time. Yeah, that's a really provocative and poignant and I think a really hopeful statement you just made for mm -hmm. people who are trying to make peace with, especially for so many people who um, they, they want to love their parents or they're, they're carrying some challenge, but you're really giving a way to make peace with your parents and your upbringing. I guess I should say really your upbringing because I think what system theory gives us is a way to look back at that without blame. It actually builds mm -hmm. your empathy. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. I agree with that, Steve. You see your parents as human beings with the struggles and insecurities they brought from their own families, uh, stumbling their way along, making mistakes along the way, some that deserve to have us have an opinion that that was um, irresponsible, but that's different to judgment and lack of empathy for the big picture that makes sense of people's failings. All right, so where are you in the birth order in your family? I am the second eldest and I have an older sister 
two younger sisters down from me and a baby brother at number five. So that's another um, aspect of Bowen theory is Bowen has us pay attention to birth order and mm-hmm. how that shapes the way we see the world. What would you like to tell us about that? Well, first I'd like to say, because um, I train people in Bowen theory, um, and one of the common errors people make is they take an idea from Bowen theory, which is a systems theory, they take the idea and they turn it into a linear cause and effect. So that I'm a second eldest, that means that has caused me to be such and such. And it's not as simple as that. It's so complicated um, because As I described earlier, understanding in many ways, I became by default like like an eldest. Oldest distanced in the intensity of what was going on around that a lot of that was triggered by my mother's cancer. I stepped into her position. So I'm a second eldest, but I functioned more like an eldest so there's a lot of complexity. It's, it's useful to just tolerate that it isn't simple. Birth order means I am this. So I'd say that first. But um, I do think that while I functioned as an eldest, I'm not a typical eldest because I followed an older sister into the world. I am sensitive to her approval and her friendship and looking up to her growing up. So that shapes me in a way that an eldest doesn't have that example ahead of them. And I think that there's more flexibility in being a second to being an eldest in that I am able to follow. I don't, even though my triangle primes me to be important, my second sibling position gives me more flexibility. I know how to follow and step back. I know how to relate down and relate up. So there's a few examples, Steve, of the fascinating area of how our sibling position shapes us. But I'm, I'm clear that it doesn't shape us to the same extent as our triangle position with our parents. And if we have sibling difficulties, the best way to understand them is by looking at the difference between each sibling's relationship with both of our parents. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm also just ruminating on a comment you made earlier when you said that we might all have the same parents, but we we weren't all raised in the same family. Mm-hmm. And I, you're, that's what you're saying now, but I'd love to hear more about that. I think that's a really helpful nugget for people. Mm-hmm. Well, how long have you got, Steve? I could talk, <laughs> yeah. I could talk all day and night about this stuff. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll give you an example from my own family of the difference. So um, if a member of the family is worried about more, and I would say all of the families we grow up in, if we've got siblings, there are different degrees of intensity of the parent's relationship with each sibling. Um, They either have a worry intensity with one child more than the other or a heightened anxious projection of the specialness of one child. And because of those variations, it significantly impacts the breathing space each sibling has to grow in autonomous functioning rather than being in the fusion, you called it a meshment, Bowen calls it fusion, that the intensity of other people's focus on a child, a parent's focus on a child, significantly impacts how much breathing space each sibling has to to differentiate or develop some psychological autonomy rather than relationship sensitivity. None of us are completely free, by the way, of relationship reactivity, but there are variations with every sibling because a parent, and you know if your parents, that I have a different relationship with each of my children. I know which one can trigger 
my worry a little bit faster than the other and how that has played out over the years. So these are some of the things to appreciate about the difference of every child's experience growing up. And I think the gift you're also giving us, Jenny, is um, you're definitely helping us um, pay attention and observe our own family dynamics like a sociologist. But, you know, I think that's one of the gifts of systems. But Mm. what I also appreciate is you're speaking in present tense. It's not as if you've graduated past these proclivities. Uh -uh. It's just that your awareness of them loosens their power over you, I think. Yes, awareness is very useful because it takes you out of trying to change others. You understand the depth of what has shaped them and respect that. That's not something that can techniques can simply offer self. So, yes, I agree with that. But I would say that it's more than awareness. I think with awareness... It opens up different choices to make about what we do and don't do in our relationships. And that's where growth can really occur. Awareness is part of it, but making different choices based on that awareness about self in our systems is where the steps of growth and change occur. Slow, slow, gradual steps, but they're, I think that. They're quite profound. I'm sure many of your listeners will identify with that, how a small, different, more mature choice in a relationship system opens up quite a different way of experiencing self in the world. Well, and you're, you, you use the word differentiation, but you're certainly talking about it now. Mm-hmm. Um, as I teach this, I find my students struggle the most with what differentiation is. So I'm always interested in asking someone who's had training how you would define differentiation. Oh, it's a slippery concept, that differentiation of self. It's an important one. It's been called the cornerstone concept of Bowen's. Yeah, Roberta Gilbert, yeah. Yeah, eight theoretical principles. So um, I can define it intellectually. That's easy. Defining the subtlety and nuances of it is hard. And so I'm going to do both. Um, Defining it as a simple intellectual statement is the capacity to be genuine, functioning for self individual while in genuine contact with important others. That would be my definition. But you notice I put in the word genuine and I've done that for a reason because I'm so aware of pretend differentiation or borrowed maturity, uh, which you're probably aware, Steve, I've written about that early in my book, Growing Yourself Up, because I know that it's easy to kid ourselves that we're more mature more able to hold an eye position when in contact with other people, whereas that eye position and that strength and confidence can so easily be in reaction to another person's uncertainty. So we can borrow our strength through another person's weakness in reaction to that, or we can borrow our calm through another person's fear. So what does it really look like to be genuinely representing ourselves rather than being the chameleon who shapes ourselves according to our reaction to another? That's where it gets slippery. Mm. Well, I I think I've asked this question of maybe uh, six or eight guests who have some kind of uh, Bowen training. It just occurred to me, Jenny, I know that you're friends with uh, Robert Creech. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, yeah, he was on he's the show a and gave a different. Oh, okay. Because I only got to meet Robert uh, last year. I saw, I have read some of his material over the years, uh, his yeah. art, articles. 
but he released a fine book last year on um, Bowen theory as a map for ministry. And he was a guest speaker here in Sydney, Australia, at a systems in ministry symposium that our centre ran. And it was really good to get to know him and his, yes. his wife. And I, I enjoyed our shared learning very much. Well, and I feel I should take credit for all the food choices he made while he was there. I was telling him what he needs to eat when he heads home. But uh, you're the you're the first person who's used the word chameleon. Uh, I think that's really helpful yeah. that that we tend to change our color when we're not differentiated, rather than being our full self. You've yeah. you've also used the phrase before, our pretend self. Mm -hmm. I imagine those two ideas are related. Sure, and Bowen called it pseudo self. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've thrown in pretend self to help it be accessible to people. And I'll tell you, Steve, how I can be a pretend self without realising it. And I think this is a common trap where I can appear to be more mature than I actually am. So when um, people in my family get anxious and worried about things, I immediately step into being the calm and logical person. So that would look like I'm more mature because I'm not apparently anxious. I'm clear thinking. I'm mostly clear thinking about what I think others can do to solve their problems, so I'm actually over-functioning. But that appearance that appearance of calm is pretend because it's my sensitivity to another's distress and not allowing them to be in their own distress, come alongside them and allow them to find their way through it without me loaning them my apparent or chameleon-like calm. So that's something I've learned of the nuance of pretend differentiation and for people like me and I meet a lot of people in the helping professions and in pastoral care who are like that in response to people in distress one of the most useful things in growing more differentiation so more genuine representation of self is that I need to make way for some of my anxieties to emerge, my vulnerabilities to emerge, rather than completely ignore them to respond to another person's anxiety. It's, it's complex, isn't it? But I think that's often something that gets missed, the difference between pretend calm versus realistic expression of self based on the facts of the moment. So I, I've had to work over the years. It was some of my early work with a Bowen Theory coach around grief in my family. I One of the things that I worked on early was expressing my own struggle to deal with grief from the other side of the world and expressing that to my siblings. And because I'm more comfortable being the one who other people come to with their distress, it was almost like an out-of-body out experience being vulnerable with my sibling group. So the path to differentiation is not always practicing being calm. For people like me, it's practicing being aware of my own distress and representing that in an honest way with the people who are important to me so that they can know me better just as I can then get to know them better. I mean, I, I think you just really struck a nerve. I know just listening to you lay out what I would describe as this pseudo-differentiation, mm -hmm. you know, it makes me want to... Uh, Kick the tables over because it, it's yeah. so accurate, for, yeah. particularly for caregivers. Um, I remember when I was on the code team uh, as a chaplain, uh, I, I would have to rush to a room if somebody's heart stopped. And, um, you know, the doctors and nurses, they get to be in the room with the paddles and they get to do something. Mm -hmm. But my job was to sit 
just outside the room with the family and you could hear everything behind you and you just had to be um, as best you could a calm presence. Mm. And I remember one of the doctors teaching us, he, he, he just simply said, anytime somebody's heart stops, just first take your own pulse. Yeah. And I thought that was remarkable, just the idea that if, if you can't mm-hmm. notice when you need care and name it and receive it, you really can't actually help another in any meaningful way. Mm. Yes, I, I think that's good, Steve, a good example. Uh, do What do you think? Am I allowed to ask you a question? What do you think is the difference between the calm presence when you are coming from the outside of a system into a family to be helpful compared to always trying to be calm in your own family? Mm, Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely aware that I'm talking to, you know, the expert in this, but I think the difference is an umbilical cord. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though I obviously Mm -hmm. don't have an umbilical cord with my kids, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's so much of your own identity wrapped up in your own children and, and your hopes mm. and your hurts and your regrets, I think. Yeah. And so I do think the hair trigger is uh, lighter. But I, I know in, in my life, like my kids are now 19, 16, and 13. Mm-hmm. But since they were younger, it, when, when you mentioned um, making sure that you know when you're anxious and not always being the provider and the caregiver, but also the care recipient. Yes. I think somewhere along the line that resonated with me because yes. like you, not only did I find myself in the caregiving posture, but I took great value in it. And as you mentioned, felt very important. Mm-hmm. And so it was very helpful to train my children to help me. Mm. Uh, to, to this day, any number of my kids could quickly say, dad, you're anxious, right? Like <laughs> you, are, mm-hmm. you are not well. And for me to be able to say to them, thank you, because I'm often the last to know. Mm. Um, that'd be my that'd yeah. be my answer. What would be your answer? Yeah, it's helpful. Well, I think there's an interesting distinction between an acute event where if you can pretend calm, that is still a resource when somebody in a hospital, you're sitting with the family and someone's in an acute health crisis, then your responsibility is to be calm but not a robot calm. So it's a challenge to get that in a genuine way. But in a family, for example, when my eldest daughter was moving to the other side of the world with her husband, she was anxious about the separation from family and all of my family were anxious. So I move into being the non-anxious, pragmatic, this is how it's going to work, this is how we're going to cope with it, as opposed to the best thing that I could do with my daughter is say, well, yeah, um, this is going to be hard for me in many ways. You being on the other side of the world, it's going to be a big change. I'm not sure how I'm going to work my way through it. So it's bringing yourself into it. Whereas you wouldn't do that in a chaplaincy situation with a family. So there's a distinction between the helping in an acute event. And even in a family, there's a place for calm in a genuine acute event. Um, Like our recent bushfires in Australia, you need to keep your wits about you to be a resource to your family facing a genuine threat as to whether to leave or stay to defend your home. I and mean, that's an acute event. That needs all the calm you can muster to be a resource. But the, the piece that I think people meet in, miss on the being calm is important is that in the relationships, the relationship transitions in a family or an organization or in a church don't require a leader to be all zipped up and pulled together and calm. They need a leader, whether it's a parent, a spouse, a family member, a pastor, to be real about their own experience of the change. When I was um, taking systems theory in grad school, 
one of the professors, he, he just said, you know, the, the baseline rule is to always take somebody's problem as seriously or more seriously than they do. Mm-hmm. And what he taught us was profound at the time. I was really young, but but he said, look, when somebody's anxious and you're calm, um, you don't realize that your attempt to be calm is actually your anxious response ah, because you, can, you yeah. can't you can't handle sitting in their anxiety with them without getting infected. Yeah, I like and that. And so, yeah, so you shrink it down to a manageable size. And and I do think, Jenny, you know, I'm a clergy. I think clergy are prone to this because we we tend to need to top everything up or inflict the Bible on people or defend mm-hmm. God. There's something weird that we need <laughs> that we believe is helping the other person, but it's really just for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes, we can use anything anxiously, including the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Oh, man, I could talk to you about this all day, but let's get to these two books. The first book uh, that you wrote, Growing Yourself Up, um, <clears throat> what a remarkable book because you, you took family systems theory and you applied it to life stage transitions. You talk about moving out of the house and getting married. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to write about systems theory through that lens? That's a fascinating lens. Yeah. Well, I really wanted to make this complex, it's simple and complex, rich theory more accessible to people. This was the book that wasn't there, I didn't feel, to recommend to my clients. There were a few good books out there, definitely, but they either emphasize theory or they emphasize examples of real life and I wanted to bring theory and real life examples together and I thought that the best way to do that was through the life cycle stage and a key systems idea is that even the life cycle stage that you're you're not going through midlife or old age there's someone in your family who's going through that or understanding how your parents manage that adjustment in life will give you a broader appreciation of them as human beings. So I just thought that the stages of life, their transition periods, anxiety and tension go up. It's the best way to see the patterns of managing anxiety at times of transition. So to me, it was a useful structure for putting Bowen theory out there in real life examples. That's great. Yeah, I, I found it to be both highly accessible and like eminently practical. I, I, it's, a, it's a book that anybody can read exactly as you said, to further understand themselves and then further understand the people they're in caring relationships with. I, I found that Rookies with Bowen theory uh, tend to want to inflict it on others rather than letting it do the work on themselves. Mm-hmm. And I do think mm-hmm. growing yourself up is a really helpful guide for people who want to uh, enter into this kind of way of thinking. Yeah. And you notice, Steve, my subtitle is more important. I like it better than the actual title, um, which is how to bring your best to all of life's relationships. There are so many books out there on how to be your best you. And in this individualistic society, it's just the, the kind of flag waving of individual well-being and, and um, being all that you can be successfully. And I didn't want a book that sounded like it was promoting individualism. So there's no point in working on self, in my view, if it isn't to contribute to helping others be their best. Um, well, yeah, that's right. The, these other books are, are simply bolstering the very pretend self that mm-hmm. you're encouraging us to mm-hmm. shed. So then just last October, you were the uh, editor and the contributor to um, Bowen Family Systems Theory and Christian Ministry. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that book. Well, that was a real pleasure to be involved in as a, pro- a collaborative project with people here in Australia who had studied Bowen theory, mental health professionals who also had a, a Christian faith, and people in ministry who were grappling in applying Bowen theory 
to how does this fit with a Christian way of viewing the world? And we thought it would be useful for our own learning and discipline to really grapple with that. So um, over a few years, the book came to fruition with three sections, really. The, the first section is looking at a biblical lens and Bowen theory. The next section is the application to different ministry contexts. And then the final areas are um, more personal accounts, also includes ministry during anxious times. And I'm just really delighted with the variety of contributions. Uh, I've got my introduction with my co-editor, Lauren Arrington, and um, two chapters I've contributed but it's a really rich collaboration in that book. And um, again, like the first book that I wrote, it's a book that I, people were asking for that had a, a more in-depth critical discussion with, with if you take the Bible seriously, how does Bowen theory sit? Are there under that? Where are the blind spots of Bowen theory rather than just superficially integrating the two? So that was the effort. Um, I, I think it's always a work in progress. I would say it's a book to promote more thinking and discussion rather than a book with lots of completed answers. Hey friends, hey, I know many of us are on the lookout for quality graphic designers. You know, in this highly visual age, we need someone with a creative eye, but also someone who's reliable and no fuss and has a broad set of talents. And I just want to pause the podcast to give a shout out to my friend, Justin Heap. Justin's part of the Missio Alliance Network. He does work for Missio. He's also part of the MLA team. And he's part of what makes this podcast happen each week. And Justin's been an absolute pleasure to work with. So I both just wanted to pause and say thanks to Justin for his work, but also to send you to his website if you're in need of some quality design work. Justin runs his own independent creative agency. He helps teams connect all the branding dots. Uh, he specializes in ideation, art, graphic design. He's experienced in a graphic design illustrator. He's also a photographer. And really, he can help you or your team with nearly any creative project or branding campaign you need. So if you're on the hunt for a good quality graphic designer who's a great communicator, fast with his work, has a, has a great eye, I'd recommend Justin Heap. You can find his agency at justinpheap.co. Uh, the P for Peter, justinpheap.co. You can also grab him on Instagram at justinpheap.co. And, uh, you know, I'd recommend him if you're looking for someone. Try Justin out. I think you'll be really thrilled. Thanks, everyone. Jenny, if you uh, are ready to brace yourself, we will inflict upon you the gauntlet of anxiety questions. If you had to choose between a spinning mind, a racing heart, and a tightening gut, or clenched shoulders, where would you say you first notice anxiety in you?
It would be the spinning mind. I, I see it in the, because I'm an over-functioner, I'm overthinking way too many things, some of them that don't belong with me. Okay. Yeah, very good. I wonder if you'd be willing just to name a couple of leadership situations that generate anxiety in your life. Like you just know these are the things that get me worked up where I have to do my own work on myself. Mm -hmm. Again, they fit to my default position of being an over-functioner, Steve. So that I get triggered with anxiety if somebody has said that they will do something and I see no evidence of it. And I become quickly anxious about, oh, do I need to help them more? Or I can become critical of the other person, which is really messes up leadership situations. And I need to watch that one very carefully. And Mm. if a person has said they do something and they're not doing it, it may well be a signal that they have agreed to something to please me without really thinking through if they are able to do that or not. So it's part of my process that I get can get caught in as a leader. Mm. It's not very pretty no. to work on that one. <laughs> yeah, good. I, I also think a great source of anxiety for any leader is making a mistake in public because for most leaders, <laughs> most of our mistakes are, are public. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you be willing to share a time you made a mistake and, and how you recovered from it? Yes. Um, I made a mistake in misjudging a person that I worked with. I saw evidences of things that I thought told me I couldn't trust them with certain issues around um, taking client work There was anxiety about finances in the system at the time. And I was reading into their distance evidence that they were hiding something. And it gave me an example of how negative projections, Bowen called it this kind of scanning, diagnosing, and then confirming what it's, it's, confirmation bias, we go looking for what we're anxious about. It showed me how the negative affect cycle can spiral and turn a relationship into something quite unhelpful. The other person was contributing their piece to it by being increasingly unavailable and distant. And that was an ended in um, the relation, a resignation, which was didn't need to happen, and if I had managed myself differently, and so people may not have seen what went into my failure of leadership, but they saw the outworking of it, which was uh, unhelpful. Um, so I share that one with you, and um, the the way that I've addressed that is sitting down one-on-one and talking through each of our experiences of that process at the time. And this happened prior to the resignation that came later. So it wasn't a messy resignation. It was a thoughtful one. But we, I listened to the other. They listened to me. And we worked out. We both had bone theory to help us work out how did we get into this. How did this get to such a place when we both actually respect each other so much? So I'm glad to say that the relationship collegially is still um, there and one that has been a good learning experience for me, growing up experience for me, Hmm. and very useful indeed. Hmm. That's a wonderful example. I'm just going to cut to the last question, Jenny. When in your life do you feel most fully loved? Hmm. Well, gosh, what's such a big question, Steve? Who can answer that one adequately? When do I feel most fully loved? I think in any situation where I just am humbled by the gifts to me that I don't deserve 
Um, this can sound heretical to to Christians, but stumbling across Bowen theory, I just an act of grace. As a Christian, I thank God for the blessing of that. Now that is that comes under any experience of God's grace. There have been times, as we all go through, of challenge and suffering. There's been a, a painful season of life in my broader family and the sense of, of Jesus walking alongside in times of suffering has always been there for me. And I see that. So that's the sense of being truly loved undeservedly. Um, is where I feel most fully loved and then seeing all the side effects of, of grace in, in my marriage, my husband's forbearance of all of my overfunctioning and annoying um, being zipped up calm person over the years and loving me all the same. They're extensions of that grace. I couldn't answer that question simply, Steve. It's such a beautiful, beautiful question. Jenny, thank you so much. What a treat this was. Um, this is the the Aussie season of our podcast, and you're our first Aussie guest. And boy, did you uh, start with a bang! Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Steve. It was fun and and insightful for me. Your good questions, so I appreciate it. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.